0: Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Hi everyone, and welcome into episode number three of Sports History 101. I'm your host, Ray Delgado. On this episode, I'll be breaking down something that a number of you probably have never heard of, the All-America Football Conference. We'll get into the All-America Football Conference here in just a minute, but first we need to do a little bit of background. So the NFL, or the National Football League as we know it today, started in 1920 and entering its 24th year of operation, so that's 1944, they had repeatedly turned down offers from all over the country to expand beyond their 10-team league. During World War II, those offers did not stop and the most persistent of suitors for a number of years was actor Don Amakey who wanted to put a team in Los Angeles. In 1942, Amaki put together a really interesting proposal for the league, acknowledging that travel would be the biggest barrier for putting a team in Los Angeles, as the NFL's farthest reaching West team was Chicago. So not far at all, really. Amaki's solution was to base his team in Buffalo, New York, until the war ended, so that would have been 1945, they obviously didn't know that then alleviating the financial struggles that were already being realized with the war. The NFL was obviously, like everything else, losing money because all of their good players were in the war. And then, for Amici, once the war was over, his team would move from Buffalo, New York, permanently to Los Angeles. Arch Ward, the sports editor for the Chicago Tribune, was the most influential sports editor in the country. And he was good friends with Amaki, So he lobbied for his friend with both Elmer Layden, the NFL commissioner, who you also might know as one of Notre Dame's four horsemen. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. And then Ward also lobbied with George Hallis, who is the Chicago Bears owner. Or he was the Bears owner. The Hallis family now owns the, still owns the Bears. And he was one of the most powerful owners in the league at that time. However, all of that lobbying, all of that effort was for naught because the NFL refused once again to expand. They were a boys club that was not letting anyone else in. Arch Ward, again, the Chicago Tribune sports editor, was livid that his friend was denied again to join the NFL and decided to form a league of his own so that he could challenge the NFL. Ward gathered a group of investors And on June 4th, 1944, in St. Louis, Missouri, the All-America Football Conference came to be. And then a month later, it was announced in the Chicago Tribune and made huge waves in the sports world. This was going to be the biggest competition that the NFL has had with another football league since they started. The league was planned to start in 1945 in 8 to 10 large cities across the country including cities like Cleveland, Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles. And Ward wrote in his sports column, all clubs are financed by men of millionaire incomes who are prepared to engage in a battle of dollars with the National Football League if necessary. That millionaire income, it's obviously still a lot of money now. But if you're thinking of sports owners, sports teams owners, that's not that much money. But back then... That was a lot of weight to be able to throw around. So that announcement was made. And oddly enough, shortly after, another of Notre Dame's four horsemen was named the AAFC commissioner in James Crowley. Again, if you don't know who the Notre Dame four horsemen is, look it up. It's pretty cool. We might honestly do an episode on it in the future sometime. But anyway, the NFL really didn't seem to care that this new league started They were a fledgling league that hadn't done anything yet, so why would they care? But the league was legitimate, and that really started to become clear when the new franchise in Cleveland announced in February of 1945 that famed Ohio State coach Paul Brown had signed on to be their new head coach. For those of you who have no idea who Paul Brown is, he's obviously now the namesake of the Cleveland Browns, but we're backing up here. In 1945, he was the premier coach in the country. He had created powerhouse programs at all levels, starting at Massillon High School in Ohio, where he actually went to high school, then to the Ohio State University, and then he entered the war and became the head coach of the Great Lakes Naval Station outside of Chicago and built their program into a powerhouse. I believe they actually beat Notre Dame at some point which was the, one of the best, greatest upsets of the time. He had amazing success wherever he went, including a national championship with Ohio State and, like I said, took down Notre Dame and a bunch of other national powerhouses while coaching at Great Lakes. He had such great success, Paul Brown did, because his process really was second to none. Everything was done with precision. Everything was regimented just so. And he planned out and studied everything in as minute a detail as was possible. That was not something that was really done at that time. Football was an extra thing, was an ancillary thing, and it wasn't something to be studied or to be honed. It was something to be played. And Paul Brown really flipped the script on everyone when he just prepared for every single opponent. He would send uh, scouts to opposing high school practices to see what these schools were doing um, to be able to gain a competitive edge. So all in all, it was a really big deal for Brown one to go to Cleveland to to coach the new franchise, but also to leave Ohio State. But he really didn't get along with the athletic director Lynn St. John, the namesake of St. John Arena for those of you who know Ohio State University. And St. John was not happy was not as happy to see Brown when he returned after the war from coaching Great Lakes and whatnot as Brown felt he should have been. Brown felt pretty underappreciated, and St. John really didn't, didn't take very kindly to that. So he's like, you know, if, if you want to leave, leave. So he did. Brown signed a $1,500 a month retainer. This is insane, but this just showed you how much the, the Cleveland franchise owner wanted him. Signed a $1,500 a month retainer through the end of the war. So he wasn't even coaching yet. This was in his, while he was still serving in the war. $1,500 a month. Then once he got out of the war, got home, he signed a $25,000 salary and got a 5% stake in the team. So that was an ungodly amount of money back then. That's just wow. I don't know what the numbers are for that. what that would be right now, but that's unbelievable. A few months later, Paul Brown and the Chicago Rockets owner, John Keeshan, were chosen by the AAFC to try and negotiate with the NFL, to try and negotiate a working agreement on a player's draft, player salary limits, schedules, possible interleague games between the NFL and the AAFC, and also anti-rating policies, You know, which means basically if a team is under contract in one league, then... The other league can't poach him with a better contract. They have to honor those. But the NFL commissioner, Layden, refused to meet and then was quoted saying, There is nothing for the National Football League to talk about as far as new leagues are concerned until someone gets a football and plays a game. That could kind of come back to bite him because they definitely got a football and played a game. So the AAFC was originally supposed to start in 1945, but they had to delay their launch to 1946 because of the war. And with that, the NFL had really one last go around before the crisis hit, before they had their main competition. Unfortunately for Layden, he wouldn't get to be a part of it as his tenure as NFL commissioner. as During his tenure as commissioner, the owners really had no belief in him. They were really far from pleased with his performance and they really didn't think he could stomach a fight with the AAFC. It also didn't help that one of his best friends who was, they were both one of two of the four horsemen from the, from Notre Dame, as I mentioned was the other commissioner. So he, they didn't, the owners did not think that he could really stand up to fight against his friend like that. The last straw for laden's nfl commissionership was when dan topping announced that he was taking his brooklyn dodgers team so brooklyn dodgers you automatically think of jackie robinson in baseball but this was brooklyn dodgers football team so dan topping was taking that team and moving them to the aafc that was a huge blow to the nfl because topping was the highest profile owner he also owned the new york yankees baseball team and he left the NFL because Layden, the commissioner, couldn't settle a dispute between Toppings Dodgers and Tim Mara's Giants over Sunday home dates. That was why he the commissioner couldn't effectively deal with this squabble. So one team, the really the marquee team in the league, was like, okay, we're leaving. That's it. So that then led to Leighton's ouster. He was gone. The teams for the inaugural AAFC season were the they had, they're split into two divisions, so there were eight teams. The East was the New York Yankees, which was actually the Dodgers who had renamed themselves. So now Topping owned the New York Yankees football team and baseball team. So the East was the New York Yankees, Buffalo Bisons, Brooklyn Dodgers and Miami Seahawks. Yes, they still had a Brooklyn Dodgers because someone else came in and said, we're going to be the Brooklyn Dodgers. In the West was the Cleveland Browns, San Francisco 49ers, the Los Angeles Dons, and the Chicago Rockets. The Browns were the powerhouse of the league and run almost perfect because of Paul Brown. So much so that the team was named after him. That wasn't actually supposed to be the case. In the spring of 1946, the franchise had a name-the-team contest where fans could suggest their, their name. And Cleveland was initially called the Panthers. But they then ran into some issues with a failed minor league franchise from the 1930s that claimed rights to the name. So Paul Brown decided they should ditch the name and go with the most common name suggested by the fans, which was his own and thus the Cleveland Browns were born. Cleveland's training camp was the model that would serve basically for other training camps in the future. All players had to follow strict rules so they could be the class of the league. Training camps, to put it into perspective back then, were really lackadaisical. Players were just there to kind of practice, kind of get to know each other, Coaches would try and, you know, get some plays on the books, you know, try and figure out what kind of personnel they have and that kind of thing. But Paul Brown made it a science. It's like football training camp today. The Browns had a regimented schedule and each player had a notebook that they were expected to copy every play into with corresponding notes by hand. And if they didn't, they'd be cut. Didn't care who you were, how talented you were, whatever. They were cut. Paul Brown also tested his players. He was the first coach, first football team to actually give their players a written test. And the test was not to see their IQ or their their smarts, their mental acumen. It was to see specific things like their drive, determination, and their ability, ability to sacrifice for the group, which were obviously very important aspects that you wanted in a football player. Paul Brown also signed the first two African-American players in the AAFC. So in Brown's career, at Great Lakes, he had Marion Motley, who was the star running back at Great Lakes. And he had actually asked for a tryout in 1945, but was turned down. Bill Willis was an All-America lineman at Ohio State, also under Brown, and he also rode Brown for a tryout, but was told to wait. Brown ended up signing both of them during the 1946 training camp. He said he waited to do so that late to be able to take the spotlight off of them by acquiring them that late. Basically, his my, his rationale was if they were signed before the season, all of this pressure would be built up and the spotlight would, would be all on them. But if they were signed sort of last minute, just kind of add-ons to the team, then they wouldn't really... Get all the fanfare that would potentially be detrimental, what probably would be detrimental because everyone was racist in the 40s. Yet another thing that Brown brought to the table was an awesome idea that probably only he had to contend with. He had too many good players for his 33 man roster. Back then, that was probably not the case, and right now, that's not the case. Like, you there's no way you're going to find a coach that has a roster so full of talent that he can't get rid of his last guy. But Brown didn't want to cut the guys who would then go play for his rivals. So he came up with a secret plan with the Cleveland owner, Mickey McBride. So Brown would cut players, and then they would get a job with the Zone Yellow Cab Company. And when they got those jobs, their schedules were planned so that they could then practice with the Browns. Thus, the quote-unquote taxi squad was born. You probably hear that term all over sports. hear it a lot in baseball now because they have a uh, specific squad for this shortened season. Uh, But that's how it came about is Paul Brown didn't want to give up his players and he didn't want to go play somewhere else, so he gave them jobs nearby. So if their services were needed, they were already – practicing with the team and knew what was going on. So right after a short break, we'll get into the opening of the inaugural season of the All-America Football Conference. The AAFC season opener was played on September 6th, 1946 at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. It was the Cleveland Browns versus the Miami Seahawks and drew a record 60,135 fans. During the whole off-season training camp, so much fanfare had been surrounding the Cleveland Browns because of what Paul Brown was doing with them. He was making them just a fantastic powerhouse team. And that showed out as Cleveland rolled Miami 44-0. to Not really the best start you want for the league in terms of competition, but a great, great turnout. There was a huge spectacle within the game. They had a ridiculous amount of fireworks. They had a a whole band. They had dancers that went out at halftime and and things like that. It was really a great show for the league for their first game. The Browns had a great first season. They dropped just two regular season games and drew a professional record of 339,962 fans in just seven home games. It's pretty astounding. Each team in the league played each other twice, one home and one away. Interesting scheduling note that the league tried in the beginning was to have a game played almost every day. As you know, the NFL only played on Sunday, and the AAFC was really trying to set themselves apart by playing Almost every day. It's really interesting. It'd be, would have been odd to just have a a random Tuesday or a Wednesday night football game. The as we mentioned earlier, the league was split into West and East divisions, and the West was a lot better, with three teams turning in winning records of the four. The Browns were twelve and two, the San Francisco 49ers were nine and five, and the Los Angeles Dons were seven, five, and two. Yes, you could have ties even back then, and they happened a lot more often. Only the Chicago Rockets were under five hundred, with 5, 6, and 3 records, so it's really still not that far off. The East only had one good team, the New York Yankees, who were 10, 3, and 1. The Buffalo Bisons and Brooklyn Dodgers were 3, 10, and 1, and the Miami Seahawks were 3, and 11. So the East really was, was not very good. The AAFC championship game would be played on December 22nd, 1946 between the two division winners, the Cleveland Browns and the New York Yankees. The game was at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, so it was fitting that the season started and ended in Cleveland and was really hard fought between the two good teams. The Yankees were a very good roster. They actually opened the scoring with a field goal off the foot of Harvey Johnson in the first quarter. Cleveland had an answer in the second quarter with a two-yard run by Marion Motley to take a 7-3 lead into the half. Out of the break, the Yankees went ahead again on a two-yard run by Speck Sanders, and then down two late in the game. The Browns marched all the way down the field, and with their potent passing attack, they threw the ball unlike any other team They had Otto Graham, who was just a fantastic player, Um, step up again. He completed a 16-yard pass to Dante Lavelli for the game-winning touchdown and brought the final to a 14-9 Browns victory. So the Browns were the AASC champions. In 1946, on the other hand, the NFL was losing money really fast and needed help quickly. The AAFC had more money. The NFL owners were not men of all millionaire incomes. The AAFC did. That was definitely true, and it was really evident. The NFL really needed a new commissioner that was willing to go to the mat for the league, and they found that in Burt Bell, who was actually a failed head coach with the Eagles. He was terrible. He had he has the worst um, coaching record of any one in history who coached at least five seasons and he lived and died for football. When Bell stopped coaching, he became a minority owner in the Pittsburgh Steelers. And when he wanted, when he was basically nominated to be the new NFL commissioner, he actually had to give up his stake to in the team to run the league, which he was fine with right from the start. Bell was ready to fight the AAFC. He was quoted saying, Sure, I recognize there's a rival professional league in operation trying to take our players and buck us at the gate, but I expect to be so busy with the affairs of the National League that I will have no time to think about the other circuit. Well, the other circuit ended up taking up much of his time. The AAFC owners included a real estate mogul in Cleveland, a vast lumber business holdings owner in San Francisco, trucking company owner in Chicago, MGM head, MGM, the movie studio, and horse track owners in Los Angeles. So all in all, they had a lot of money. It is worth noting that the NFL Continued to play through World War II. And from what was written, had the NFL stopped operation during the war and started back up again afterwards, a lot at the same time the AAFC did, it's pretty uncertain what, as to which league would have actually won out because the AAFC did really well to start. With all the money in the AAFC, you keep talking about how much money they have. While well, they put it uh, put the money where their mouth is, the salaries in both leagues started to skyrocket because, I mean, there was competition now. The only teams to actually make a profit in both leagues, though, were the league champions. So The Cleveland Browns made $10,533.89, which is pretty substantial back then. Now it's peanuts, obviously. And then the Chicago Bears in the NFL. All the other teams lost huge sums of money, and that was most prominent in the shared markets. So obviously in New York, there were there were three teams in Chicago, there were three teams because the NFL actually had the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cardinals, and then the AAFC had the Chicago Rockets. So that was just doomed from the start. But everyone was losing money left and right. The AAFC wanted to meet the NFL after the forty-six season uh, just to talk things over, see what, what how things were going. But the NFL and their new commissioner, Burt Bell, refused outright. The 1947 season looked a lot s- similar to the first season of the AAFC, but was more successful at the gate. It was actually their most successful season of their existence. The biggest changes were... Miami Seahawks owner went bankrupt, and the team was actually moved to Baltimore and renamed the Colts. It's not the Colts that we know today that were the Baltimore Colts and moved to Indianapolis. This is a different Colts. The other big news of things was that Commissioner Jim Crowley left office to become a part owner of the Chicago Rockets to help the troubled franchise because they were just bad. They. They were losing games all the time. They couldn't get their stuff together and it just wasn't working. So Jim Crowley, a good football guy, decided to leave uh, the commissioner's office and become a part owner to try and help them. And he was replaced by Admiral Jonas Ingram. I don't actually know if Admiral was his first name or if that was his title in the war. I don't know. But either way, he was replaced. Another thing to note, so I guess those were big things. this is also a big thing, that the league moved to just playing on weekends. So they decided that the midweek idea was bad, didn't like it, and moved to just playing weekends just like the NFL did. For the '47 season, the Browns again were the class of everything. They only lost one game. They fell to the Los Angeles Dons in Los Angeles, but still rolled to a 12-1-1 record and won the East or the West, I'm sorry, by four games over the 49ers. So it wasn't even close. The New York Yankees in the East finished 11-2-1, and they also won the division by three games, which was a wide margin. That meant that the AAFC championship game would be a mirror of the last, but this time it was played in Yankee Stadium. That was actually where the, well, I guess both New York Yankees teams played. And they actually outdrew the, first championship game and the second one in 1967 they had 47 excuse me they played in front of 61,879 fans I'm not really sure how that came to be that they would play in New York because Cleveland had the better record but maybe it was something to do with the game switched between east and west and whatnot I was not able to figure that out nonetheless Cleveland won out The Browns scored in the first when Otto Graham ran for a touchdown. The Yankees scored their only points in the second quarter with a field goal. And then to really seal the deal, the Browns scored in the third uh, with running back Edgar Jones ran for a four yard touchdown. So through two years, it was still proven. Paul Brown's methods were still the best. They're hands down. 1948 had quite a few issues. That started to show up pretty early, Um, aside from the heavy losses that every team was having from the very start. A number of teams changed hands in between the 47 and 48 seasons. And the famed branch Ricky, if anyone knows who that is, he's the guy who actually signed Jackie Robinson and brought him into the league. He was a huge executive with the Brooklyn Dodgers and then with the St. Louis Cardinals where he created the baseball farm system, which is pretty cool. Uh, He, Branch Rickey, actually took over the Brooklyn Dodgers football team. It really gets confusing when the football team and the baseball team were both named the same. Um, But eventually, the Brooklyn Dodgers football team would, would not pan out. They didn't do very well, and Branch Rickey couldn't fix that. The Browns, again were the best, completed the season, actually undefeated this time. They won all 14 of their games, and with that, they actually drew less fans and less attention in the process because everyone was really just sick of they expected the Browns to win, and that was kind of it. The only other team in the whole league in all for all eight teams, other than the Browns, to end the season with a winning record was actually the San Francisco 49ers. And they finished 12-2, and which is no slouch at all. The only problem was they were also in the West with Cleveland, which means they wouldn't get to play in the championship game. The East again showed how poor it was. And this time, they didn't even have a single team that finished with a winning record. The Buffalo Bills and the Baltimore Colts actually tied for first in the division at 7-7. and As mediocre as it gets. It did offer a new wrinkle for the league, however, because you obviously can't have three teams playing in the championship game, so they had to have a playoff to determine the division winner. The Bills eventually beat the Colts, but then just got steamrolled by the Browns, 47-9, to 9, who would win there on their way to their third straight title. The most looming issue which you can probably uh, guess by now for the AAFC was the lack of competition within the league. When what the NFL had begun to do a couple years earlier when Burt Bell first took over was schedule some similarly talented teams against one another, meaning that teams that had similar records the year before would be scheduled to play each other early in the next year. So if a team finished seven and seven in one year or the year before and another team finished seven and seven, then they would play each other early on the next season because that would keep teams in the playoff race in theory longer. And there'd be more competitive balance. You'd actually see your team play a team of its actual caliber and not get blown out. Like basically every game in the AAFC was with the Browns and it ended up working really, really well they were able to really find a good competitive balance. And Burt Bell did a great job. He, The NFL actually had a whole bunch of issues early on in their existence with the schedule because the owners obviously wanted their teams to play the other marquee teams always, but that wasn't always possible because you can't just leave the other smaller market teams hung out to dry all the time, which would often happen because the, the owners made the schedule together, and the more powerful owners like George Hollis of the Chicago Bears would really strong arm people into what he wanted, just, and he was not alone in that. There were a handful of others that would do the same thing. So they handed over the reins to Burt Bell, the commissioner, who created the schedule all on his own. He created a few different drafts of it each year. He would spend hours and hours and hours, days and days doing this. And then he would propose, I think he'd propose a few schedules, and then they would vote to see which one they would want the most. And it, it worked out really well. It's, uh, it was kind of the precursor for the competitive balance that the NFL has done now because they really are the most balanced league in, I mean, the really the major sports in America because it's never really a foregone conclusion who's going to win. You can usually expect the Patriots, but... That's not always just a foregone conclusion. However, on the flip side, we're going back to the 40s again. In the AAFC, everyone always expected the Browns to win. And no one else ever really had a chance. And that caused a lot of apathy toward not only the Browns, but every other team. Because if you know your team's going to lose, why would you care? Always. And they never had any chance. It's not like now where... Your team will eventually get better. These teams had no chance. And with that all all of that apathy, that meant that teams continued to lose money and were still locked in the battle with the NFL, and that was not going to go away. But that feeling was not only on one side, that they were just locked in this battle that was never-ending. The NFL also felt that. And the teams themselves were really tired of competing and losing money to the AAFC because they were all losing money too. Football was not a profitable sport for a long time. So NFL teams and AAFC teams uh, really started basically back channel talks, just quiet things like, hey, would you be interested in this or this or just trying to figure out how to navigate the landscape? So we're going to break for a minute. And then we'll get on to the 49 season where really a lot started to change for the AAFC and the NFL. As we mentioned before the break, the 49 season was really a turning point for the AAFC for a number of reasons that we'll get into. But even before that season, there were even more changes that happened just like the last offseason. The Brooklyn Dodgers, as I mentioned, who Branch Rickey took over and tried to help well, they failed. And they ended up merging with the Yankees, making the league only seven teams. Uh, That meant that there were obviously two unbalanced divisions. So they had to consolidate into one big division and introduce a playoff system which afforded opportunity for more teams technically to get in because it wasn't just the division winner of each side and opened the door for the 49ers who had had success but were never able to play in the championship game because the Browns were always better. The league was also on its third commissioner. um, Admiral, I don't remember his last name, uh, stepped down and he was replaced by O.O. Kessing, which doesn't really mean much, but it's still worth note. And with basically with only having seven teams, the league actually got better and became more competitive, I guess, because, and I would say more interesting because it was all in one division and it was a race for the top to be the number one seed. So you could play the, it was the one and four and the two and three and things like that. Um, But, it, the damage had already been done in terms of the league's long-term viability. Um, so, as you can imagine, the Browns finished again at the top of the league, 9-1 and 2. So they had two less games because there was one less team. Uh, followed by the 49ers who were 9 and 3, the Yankees were 8 and 4, and the Bills were 5-5 five, five, and 2. So still okay. Still, only three of the seven were actually winning records. In the divisional round, the Browns beat the Bills, which was actually closer than, than what uh, you would expect to the 31-21 victory. And the 49ers beat the Yankees 17-7. to So there would be a a new uh, yet another team that would actually get the shot. And like I said, mentioned earlier, it was the 49ers. They had been one of the better teams for... The whole time the league had been in existence, but the Browns never let them in. So it would be the first time, and what well, we'd come to find out soon, the last time that they got to play in the AAFC Championship game. Unfortunately, they still lost to the Browns, twenty-one to seven. So the Browns won four straight in four trips. The rumblings, the back channel talks, and things like that that have been going on for the last couple of years had finally come to a head in December of 1949, during the 1949 season. After two days of negotiation at the Philadelphia Racket Club, an agreement was made between the AAFC and the NFL. The merger was announced on December 9th, two days before the Browns would beat the 49ers in the last, what they would come to find out would be the last AAFC championship game. In the merger agreement, uh, of the existing seven AAFC teams, only three were actually going to be absorbed into the NFL. As you would expect, the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers, because they were two of the most successful franchises, or the two most successful franchises in the league. The third was a little weird. Uh, It was the Baltimore Colts who actually got joined brought into the league uh, they really never had any success in their couple years but they were a natural rival for the Washington Redskins so George Marshall the owner of the Redskins wanted to bring them in they would only end up lasting a season but you know what can you expect from a team that went 1-11 and the year before the rest of the players from the other four teams were divided amongst the NFL teams. I don't believe they were drafted. I think it was just uh, maybe it was a pick out of a hat kind of deal or you know, more negotiations there so that too many teams wouldn't get the uh, cream of the crop players and everyone else would be left with the rest. Uh, the league was to be named the National American Football League, and with that, the AA, FC, the All-America Football Conference, ceased to exist. It's kind of an interesting thing to note. Obviously, it didn't apparently have much uh, ground for anything, but the AAFC averaged 38,310 fans a game, while the NFL only averaged 27,602. So that's basically 11,000 fan difference, and somehow the AAFC was the one who was disbanded. But I guess the tradition, really the structure of the NFL, uh, made it win out with doing no small part to Burp Bell. The National American Football League moniker only lasted a few months before they thought it was, I'm sure they probably thought it was dumb, because it is dumb. It means the same thing. Um, And they changed it back to the, the National Football League, the NFL. With the new three teams in the league, that means the NFL went to 13 teams and was realigned. They also played in, in two divisions, two divisions of five teams, just like the AAFC did, but they played in two divisions of four. Now they had to realign into two divisions of six and seven, and that obviously makes for an unbalanced league. During, during Going back a little bit in time, during early talks with, between the AAFC and the NFL, Paul Brown of the Browns and George Marshall of the Redskins, as I mentioned earlier, did not get along. They didn't like each other. And that caused Marshall to try and strong arm the league and the Browns into being the quote unquote swing team of the league. That basically means that they would play each team in the league only once. And every other team in the league played all those in their division twice. So basically this was a more or less a placeholder team because, again, the, the divisions were unbalanced, so someone had to eat those extra games. And Marshall, because he didn't like Paul Brown, wanted to be the Browns. Paul Brown flat out refused and threatened to pull out of the league, rightfully so, because he was the best team in the AAFC and was probably going to be the best team in the NFL. So Burt Bell stepped in and eventually made the Baltimore Colts the swing team. That uh, wouldn't turn out to be so so great. Well, it's not a really good situation for anybody, but it turned out not to be good for the Colts. Uh, really, probably more than others. One of the other big decisions that was made during their peace talks or after the merger was to adopt the AAFC rule of unlimited substitution. Uh, we don't really think about that today because that's, that's just commonplace. That's how it is. That's the rule that it's always been. But it wasn't always that way. They actually had limited subs in a football game. And that was really how the players you hear about in the old days, they played both ways. They play offense and defense. That was because the team only had a number of substitutions that basically barred players from coming out. So with this unlimited substitutions rule that eliminated the need for these two-way players and they went away. Instantly, just like that. Because if you need a player, you really want a player to play to their strengths, obviously. So, if one player is a phenomenal receiver or a phenomenal running back and he's an okay linebacker, but you need him to play linebacker because you need him in at the running back position when there's limited substitutions, you have to do that. When there's unlimited, why would you make him split time and split his practice time and whatever between being a running back and a linebacker? Well, you wouldn't. So, they didn't. But that was really big because there was actually a, a couple college teams that would do that. Um, the Navy team actually did that. They would bring out different platoons for, huh, no pun intended or no reference intended, um, and play full units with one another on the football field. And they actually they got a lot of blowback from that. So this was a big deal. Once the leagues merged and there was no threat of hostile takeover and no, no more competition. Uh, football became a lot more profitable and successful. Uh, just for the three clubs who had come over, they had really mixed results in 1950. Cleveland didn't, didn't skip a beat and they managed to win their first NFL championship in the very first year they were in the league, which made them Champions five years in a row in five years of existence. The 49ers did not have as much success. They only won three of their three of their games and the Colts only won one game. And then they folded after the season. That's why I keep saying that they're not the Colts that we know uh, that the Colts would actually come back in 1953 as the Baltimore Colts, and then they would move to Indianapolis later, and those are the Colts that we know today, the ones that Johnny has played for. All in all, the AAFC was the first true test of really anything outside of you know the natural um, factors like interest in football and things like that this was really the first war of attrition that the nfl had to face in terms of uh, of competition it wasn't so much the environmental factors of how do we get players to games and how do we how do we put together talented teams it's how do we survive and beat this league and that was really big that was really big for the the league's existence and that was really big for football and the aafc had a great four years and drove football forward quite a bit. Uh, they you know, definitely were no slouches in, in what they were trying to do. They hired Paul Brown, which was revolutionary for the entire game of football, and <laughs> basically set the standard for what football teams would look like today with regimented practices and rules and training camps and all that stuff, and also brought in other rules and different things and, and new teams. I mean, they brought the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers into the NFL. And those are two two of the most storied franchises that are in existence in the NFL today. So a lot is owed to the AAFC. And unfortunately, the league is unfamiliar to most. But the All-America Football Conference looms huge within the history of the NFL and professional football. And really should be talked about a lot more often. Even though it was only around for four years, it was a big deal. One thing I would like to note is that a lot of this info can be found in the book, America's Game, The Epic Story of How Football Captured a Nation, by a guy named Michael McCambridge. This book is awesome. It's all about the history of football from when it started to... I think like 10 years ago when it was written, it's, it has, I mean, the AAFC, because it was so early on in the NFL's existence is the pretty early part of the book, but it goes through so many awesome anecdotes and important parts of history of the NFL and professional football that you otherwise would have no idea about. It's a little long. It's like 600 pages, I think. Um, well, it's not that big a book, but it's got really small print, which makes the pages longer. and it's definitely worth the read. If you love football, if you love history, then it's it's really great. You can learn quite a bit. We actually have a review of it on our site, saintsportsnetwork.home.blog that you can check out. You can buy the book on Amazon. I mean, I got it at a, a book sale for 50 cents, and it's one of the best purchases I've made in terms of books because... It's just a resource you can keep going back to to really get a pulse on what football was like in a certain era. Well, that does it for our third episode. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it and feel compelled to read up on some football history on the AAFC, the NFL, the USFL, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Until next time, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintsportsnetwork.home.blog.